We're going to start the book of 1 Corinthians today. Uh, after 34 years, I thought I should go back to it. Uh, 34 years ago, I believe I did the book of 1. So some of you will get me for repeating. Uh, but I buried most of them. And... Uh, after 34 years. And so uh, we're back to a marvelous, marvelous book. And uh, I want to introduce this book to you uh, and put it in the setting. I've called it Once Corinthians, Now Californians. Uh, There seems to be a whole lot of similarity between what's going on in this book and what goes on in this region, California, and when we planted this church. You got to know that the book of Corinthians came out of Paul uh, was up at Athens in Acts 17. He debated with the philosophers at Mars Hill. Uh, He was thrown out of a uh, synagogue, so he made his way over to Corinth, 45 miles west of Athens. And uh, Corinth was an amazing city. It had been destroyed uh, once, But Julius Caesar, about 44 B.C., uh, built another city there, made it a Roman colony, and Corinth was the capital in the region of Achaia. Uh, The city was built uh, at an isthmus, a narrow piece of land that connected the Aegean and Adriatic Sea. And to avoid a 200-mile dangerous voyage around the south of France, what they would do is come in at Sincrea and uh, they would put their ships on skids and cut across this narrow body of land and connect with the other ocean, saving themselves about 200 miles of dangerous sailing. Uh, in about 1890-something, they finally dug all the way through that isthmus and connected those two seas, saving a lot of uh, sea time. Uh, it was quite a city. It was a city of 700,000 people at the time that uh, Paul is uh, starting a church there in Acts 18, went to the synagogue, got thrown out. And so he went to the Gentiles, but he led the synagogue leader to the Lord and his family. And uh, from Corinth, uh, he leaves and he goes back to Ephesus. He writes this book from Ephesus, but this is a church he planted. So these people, by the time he's writing this epistle, have probably been saved two years. Not very long. And and I want you to imagine what it would be like to plant a church in an area like San Francisco and think of it as the first church to ever be planted. And here this city It was a commercial region because of the seaport there. It was a philosophical center. They were greatly enamored with Athens, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and all of that uh, sophistry that came out of Greece. So they're greatly under that influence, though they speak Latin as a Roman colony, but Greek is still the uh, uh, common tongue. Many Jews there, they fled Rome under Claudius. And so Paul goes here and he preaches. And when he preaches, God saves a group. He leaves them after being with them for 18 months. 
And uh, so they've only had an on-site pastor, apostle, preacher for 18 months. So he goes across uh, the Aegean, goes over to Ephesus in Asia Minor. And uh, while he's there, uh, he starts being told things about the church. And he responds. Chloe brings a report in chapter 1, verse 11. He wrote them a letter that was lost in chapter 5, 9, dealing with the way they were living, their morals and those kinds of issues. But that letter had been lost. But he said, you remember I wrote you, and we don't know whatever happened to that letter. But they obviously uh, received it. And then he comes to chapter 7, and he's saying, I answered a bunch of your questions about marriage, sexual purity, celibacy, divorce, and he deals with that. So this book is a book of a church planter that after two years of being away at the most, he's getting the report of the internal problems that's happening. Now, you got to think of this. Some of you have been in the church so long, you know every hymn. You know every book of the Bible. But think of planting a church among raw pagans. Never heard the gospel before. They've only got a Jewish synagogue in town, but no church. And uh, what happens the subjects he deals with here, I've seen staid congregations and folks been saying, oh, why are you mentioning this in church? Uh, th- th- this audience didn't mind it. Let's talk about sex in church. Why? These people have been sex saturated. And it reminds me of our area. I think of several things. We're a seaport area. This place became famous with the great harbors in the San Francisco Bay and ships to get out of that Pacific. So we've been in a a very crossroads. Think of all of Asia. We're the Ellis Island uh, for the East. Philippines, China, Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia, Thailand, on and on. India, people come in to this country through San Francisco, many of them, just like Ellis Island in New York City. We're, we're a commercial uh, crossroads, an ethnic melting pot. Uh, you don't know. Colors here, you don't know where they're from. If they're brown, they, they don't say they're Mexican. You don't know where they're from. They're yellow, they may be Filipino, maybe Chinese, maybe Taiwan. May, oh, and an Anglo says, well, they all look alike because you don't know what you're talking about. Diversity, diversity. All kinds of ethnicities in this area, all kinds of religious backgrounds, uh, all kinds of wisdom. You know, some of the most famous think tanks in the world are within 45 miles of us. Palo Alto, Stanford, Condoleezza Rice. Yeah. Other think tanks. Uh, I mean, a place of brilliant people, brilliant thinkers, and that famous free-thinking school called Cal. <laughs> Think of that philosophy department. No wonder Timothy Leary sold LSD here. What a place to begin. 
No wonder Huey Newton and those guys wanted the free speech movement to start right there on Sprawl Hall. Man, this is the place. If you've got a liberal crazy idea, take it to L.A. or San Francisco. We'll buy it. Hippies love San Francisco. They love free love, drugs, and hate Ashbury. And uh, very much like Corinth. I, I'm amazed at Paul. Paul never did think about planting a church in the middle of Montana. I want to plant it in Rome. I'm going to Ephesus. I'm going to Corinth. Why? There's a lot of sin there. The gospel is for sinners. It's not for deer in Montana. You go to the, the public square. Where do things get started in this country? Don't they start on the East Coast or the West Coast? Not too many brand new ideas have come out of, uh, you know, Missoula, Montana. It's think tanks where we say, oh, liberalism centers. This is Corinth. He went right at the heart. He's just come from Athens. I'm going there. Philosophical center, commercial center, uh, the capital of the Roman province. And they had a reputation. There was a word in those days to Corinthianize. There's the word to Corinthianize meant to go drop inhibitions and have a Mardi Gras of sex for all the time you're there. The sailors couldn't wait to hit Corinth. Thousand prostitutes at one time worked in a temple famous for its immorality. Uh, I, I went to school in Dallas and it's amazing when we're, they're taking role in class. Where are you from? And so many of these guys in there, I'm from Mississippi. I'm from Georgia. I'm from Dallas. They say, they would say this, that if this state is the Bible Belt, Dallas is the buckle. That's what they say. There's more churches in Dallas. When I was there, there's 1,200. There's now 14 or 1,600, and many of them average five to 15,000. We're just the Sunday school department, this church. Huge churches. David and I, we went and heard Dr. W.A. Criswell. We wanted to hear him at First Baptist. They only ran 22,000. And uh, Billy Graham was a member there. And then they'd ask me in class, where are you from? Well, I didn't say, Pano. <laughs> I wouldn't even say Richmond. What's that? We never even heard the town. I'd say San Francisco Bay. And about that time, they'd all go into prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mean there's churches out there? Mm-hmm. 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 Are, you a, are you a one of them? What do you mean one of them? Immediately, suspicion. Say, wow, you do have an accent. You've been hanging out with blacks, haven't you? I mean, they're suspicious. Just like, well, well what, 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 I'm, I'm here going to school. But you're from San Francisco. I, they would say, said, man, you couldn't pay me enough money to go out there. I said, why? I knew. Man, haven't you heard of what goes on in that place? No, I just live there. I don't know anything. 
hey, hey, you're not close to Berkeley, are you? Yeah. Ooh, we noticed a twitch in your eye. We knew there was something wrong with you. I said, I pastor in the Bay Area. And once Corinth, now Californians. Let's see what he says. Take your little outline here, and we'll walk through it. You'll, maybe you get the feel. A church planted in a pagan world, just like churches planted in the Bay Area. If you're a third-generation Christian, you've become so callous and naive to what the first-generation Christian faced. This is what they faced coming out of paganism. Um, let me read. Paul, called to be an apostle. That would be a nice way of a divinely appointed church planner who has seen the risen Christ. You had to see him resurrected. By the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, he's one of the men that got beat up uh, at Corinth in Acts 18. They beat him up after a court hearing. And now he's joined Paul. Uh, who is writing? Paul, an apostle. A man commissioned by God to go plant churches. He went to the Jew first. And when they beat him up, threw him out, he would turn to the Gentiles. And thus he became the apostle, the preacher to Gentiles. Uh, uh, where are the recipients? They're in the city of Corinth, as I described. And uh, who are these recipients? Listen to them. To the church of God. Uh, what about it? In Corinth, where is the church? Is there one in Hercules? Some of you weak. Yeah, well, there, there is a church here. There's one church universal, but God has local churches throughout the world. Wherever there's a group of called out saints, the word church means building. No, it doesn't. Come on. You're supposed to talk back to me. It means people called out by God. Called out from this pagan culture called unto Christ. We are the church, the people that belong to God. They happen to reside in Corinth. We happen to reside here in the Hercules San Francisco Bay Area for all of you that get this CD. God's got a church in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's many of us. Uh, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've been around holiness churches, they got some of these sanctified, twice baptized on fire churches. Uh, but here he says, everybody in Christ has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does sanctify means? It means to be set apart as holy. Uh, when they had the tabernacle, they would take utensils and they would sanctify them. They would take it, let's say a shovel to clean out the ashes from killing all those animals. They would say, we're going to sanctify this to the Lord's use. We're going to set it aside just for God's use. To be sanctified in Christ, and this is a past tense, every believer has been placed into Christ. And in that position, he is seen as set apart unto God. And it happens to every believer all you believers in Christ today, you've already landed and you're sanctified in God's sight. We call that positional sanctification. 
It's because you're in Christ. But now watch what he says. But you've been called to be holy. And the word holy and sanctified are the same word in the Greek. You've been set apart. Now God's called you to live out what you've been made. He wants you to live holy now. He wants you to live like you belong to God and that you're not just available for anything or anyone. You belong to God if you're in Christ. That's why you can come to a church and get a pastor with a scrawny finger pointing to you and say, you better live this way. You say, who do you think you are? I will tell you how God wants you now to live. Oh, okay, I better listen. Yeah, you better. Because this is the Father's instruction. Now, I'm saving you out of this mess, but this is the way I want you to live now. Hmm. Sure, it gets quiet when you talk about holiness. Uh, and you are a part of those people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was the Hellenistic greeting, uh, peace was the Jewish greeting. But you never get peace until you taste of God's grace. So grace should always come first. Grace from God gives you peace with God. So he greets them. Now, he's going to tell them what God has given to these saints with all these problems. You want to know? Let me give you a little preview. No, I'll I'll save that to you. We'll deal with the problems later. Listen to what he says about them. Uh, I always thank God for you because... I was there when I saw God extend grace to you. I preached and I saw you get saved and God showed mercy and grace on you. I thank God that you have been recipients of the grace that's in Jesus Christ. You're special kind of folks. When I see you, I see the grace of God. For in him, Christ, you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. God sent me into town and he poured out his grace on you and he's poured out his riches on you, the riches you have in Christ. And in these riches, he's given you spiritual gifts that have made you rich in communication. He's made you rich in knowledge. Oh, he had just poured it on you. You're recipients of God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's gifts. Um, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So their problems had nothing to do with what God gave them. He gave them all the spiritual gifts they needed. He gave them all the grace they needed. He gave them riches, and yet they've got problems galore. But he's thanking God now for what he knows God did for them. You're sanctified. You're in Christ. He's put riches on you. He's shown grace on you. You're not just bumps on a log. You're people that he saved out when I came to the city of Corinth. Goes on. He, God the Father, will keep you strong to the end. What a promise. Keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the main reason you'll be blameless on that day? There won't be anyone there to blame you. 
Christ says, I intercede for my people. I don't blame my people. Read that in Romans 8, 33. Shall he who intercedes for you accuse you? You won't be perfect in your own merit. You never will be. But the accuser of the brethren will have already been cast down. All of them. And Christ could say, as in uh, John 8, where are those who accuse you? The Father chose you. I died for you. The Spirit sealed you. And we promised you there'd be a day you'd stand before us without any blame. There's no future blame for the saints. No purgatory. No second chance after salvation. Not coughing up good. I'm going to land blameless. And Jude said, without fault. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And my old daddy would tell me, son, he either can or he can't. And he's a liar if he can't. He said he could. Can he? He said he could. Now unto him that's able. Didn't say, now unto Phil Howard that's able. Man, it's like Moody one day walking down the street of Chicago and a, a drunk yelled out to him, Mr. Moody, you remember me? And he said, no, I don't. He said, I'm one of your converts. He said, you must be. You don't look like Christ's convert. <laughs> if Christ was working in your life, you'd quit being a drunk. But I must have been the one that saved you. I can't keep you. You better know who saved you. He said, God the Father can keep you. And he will present you blameless on that day. No one in the court can say one word against the saints when they land. And God, who has called us into the partnership with his son, uh, of his son, Jesus Christ, he is faithful. That is, he is reliable to keep this promise. He will do it. He will be faithful to do everything it takes to let us land in heaven blameless. Now, not doing too bad so far, right? Is this wonderful? This is what you got too. You're sanctified. Sometimes we can't tell it. But in Christ you are. You've landed. You've been made rich in Christ. God hasn't withheld any spiritual blessing to you when he saved you. You, there's not more of the Holy Spirit you can get. You got all of them you can get when you got saved. Now, he can get more of you, but you can't get more of him. Okay, you're just going to sit there and breathe heavy. It's going to get harder now. Now I'm going to tell you the problems. <laughs> He's going to start to deal with a bunch of problems. The first problem is... They have fallen into personality cults in his absence. And they're turning Christianity and being about men. But look at this book, what he's going to deal with. The root of getting into men is they think human wisdom and human power is the greatest thing going. And it's going to deal with them in chapter 1 and 2. Human wisdom and human power didn't save you. Chapter 3 He's going to put human leaders in their place. They were called just to be tools of God, labors, but not to be the head of parties. They're just called to serve. Chapter 4, Paul is going to tell them that a true man of God or woman of God becomes a servant of God. They're known by their servanthood, not their following. Chapter 5, he starts dealing with big problems. They had sanctified people that were going to land in heaven blameless, sleeping with their mother. 
he's dealing with a saint, he never writes to correct the unsaved. We have nothing to say to the unsaved, but you need Christ. He tells a saved man, you shouldn't be sleeping with your mother. So, wait, 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 wait. Christians can't do that. They did it at Corinth. Well, I can't imagine. Christians couldn't do something like that. Well, they did. Chapter 6, he's going to write to them. They were suing one another. How about going to church with somebody that's going to sue you? We always tell you to do business with unsaved people, then you can sue. (laughs) You can't sue a brother. Well, look at that. Then he's going to say, we got saved people there. They don't know how to keep their pants on. They're sexually immoral. They're sleeping with anything in town. They're going to bed with prostitutes, man. And they're sanctified. They're saved. You say, well, I don't believe a saved person can do that. Well, you, you don't believe the book. You said they did. You did. Some of you, some of you get so old you can't even spell sex. <laughs> when you're young people in Corinth and California, they can spell sex. It's all around them. How do I handle sex and become a young believer? What do I do about my sexual morals now that I've accepted Christ? I'm used to sleeping with whoever, whenever, however I want, and now the Bible's telling me you only can have a sex life and marriage to be blessed. Well, I've been living with this chick 15 years, and I want to continue. Well, if you are saved, God has ways. And that will leave up to him. But I would talk to Wilson and Kratzer and arrange my funeral arrangements because he, he knows how to kill you. I'll sleep with whoever I want. Yes, you will, you pagan. But don't name the name of a brother because if you say your brother around here, we're going to call out your name eventually and say that brother is a liar because he hasn't departed from what he knows to be wrong. You can't live this way for long around believers. I said, well, stay with me. This might be the biggest audience I have, but this is where we're going. (laughs) Chapter 7, he's going to tell you uh, how to live as married people and tell you how uh, wonderful sex is in Christian marriage. Everybody, I just got your back right there. Come back on that week. (laughs) That'll be chapter 7. And then he's going to tell you, is it better to be single or married? And uh, on that morning, I'd like to just have singles if we could pack the place. But you married, get to set in. Uh, chapter 8, we're going to find out where you get to eat. Do you get to eat at uh, Joe's Grill and Bar? Uh, or can you have food at the Idol's Temple? Where do I eat? Chapter 9, he's going to tell us that an apostle has some rights, but he gave them up for the gospel. Chapter 10, he's going to tell them, just because God set you free, don't get cocky. You can still fall just like the children of Israel. Chapter 11 from through 14, he's going to answer the problems dealing with worship. What is the place of women in the church and how should they look at church? 1 Corinthians 11. Should they all be wearing a hat or not? And we've been through that, believe me. Uh, he's going to address the uh, issue of the Lord's Supper and why God has been killing off people because of the way they've been abusing it. He's going to pick up the matter of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, everybody's got a gift. 13, if the gift isn't used in love, 
uh, profits nothing. Chapter 14, if we've got prophets and tongue talkers, give precedence to the prophets because everybody can be edified. They were even being seduced at the church that there was no resurrection of the dead. So he writes chapter 15 to deal with that problem. Some had made uh, pledges to support and had not kept their promise because there's a lot of liars in church about money. And so he writes to them, you guys, if you made a pledge to help the poor in Jerusalem, I'm going to swing by Corinth. I expect the offering to be taken and we're going to send it to the poor. Keep your word. Do what you promise. And then he goes out acknowledging a bunch of folks. But now let's just deal with the present problem. Verse 10, watch this. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You're kidding. No, I'm not. There's some of you who haven't agreed with anybody all your life. And he says, but I hear there's divisions among you. And the word is schism. And schism comes from a word schismatic that literally meant to tear a garment it was used of plowing a field, to, to cut a furrow, uh, to divide. He said, I hear in this little church that I started that you're splitting up, that you're, you're renting up, being torn apart. I hear it. None of you told me about it, but a sister named Cloy, who either lived in Ephesus, a woman of means, or Corinth, some, A.T. Robertson said, I don't believe she lived in Corinth because they may go out and want to beat her up. Maybe she lived in Ephesus but paid a visit. And she says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Eh, there's no such thing as believers quarreling. Is there? Well, it's only new believers just do that. Church fighting. Mm. And what are they fighting over? We don't know originally, but the fight has taken the form of dividing up the church into favorite teachers and matching one against another. And this is what they're doing. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, called Peter also. Still another, I follow Christ. Imagine, and not one of these teachers started these parties. Their names was, were borrowed to give it credibility, and they, the church was splitting up. I, Paul is my preacher. He's my man. That's who I follow. I follow Cephas. And of all that, you know the most spiritual took the name, I am of Christ. They had the right name, but the wrong behavior. They were all great Bible teachers, great servants of God. What could you say about Christ? And Paul hears this as, what? None of these guys preached there. I was the only one that preached. But you see, a hostile group is opposing Paul. They're against Paul. Second Corinthians is the most heartbreaking of all the epistles in the life of a preacher. A.T. Robertson wrote a book called The Glory of the Ministry where he describes the heartache of Paul of seeing the people he led to the Lord turn on him. 
great, great heartbreak. So they're dividing up the church, and Paul starts asking a question, is Christ divided? Has Christ been portioned out that way? Here's the Apollos portion. Here's the Cephas portion. Here's Paul portion and mine. Has Christ been divided? No. There's one Christ, one people of God. What's all this splitting and dividing up? Then he asked, what a preposterous question. Was, Christ, was Paul crucified for you? Building a party in my name? I didn't die for any of you people. What are you, what are you doing having a party named after me? I didn't die for any of you people. Is that what I preached? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What name were they told to baptize in? Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 2.38, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. You never baptize in the name of Cephas, the name of Apollos, the name of Paul. We baptize in the name of our God, not human teachers. And now he's recollecting. Maybe as he's talking to the amanuenses, as he dictates the letter, he says, you know, uh, I didn't baptize anyone but Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. I didn't hardly baptize anyone there. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Note that verse. Those who say you've got to be baptized in water to be saved. Right there, there's the difference. Baptism is not the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. You don't have to be water baptized to be saved. And we baptize people. We're baptized the first Sunday night of February. But it does not save. It's only a testimony that I put my faith in the gospel, and that alone saves. Keep that straight. Baptism doesn't save. And he says, God didn't commission me. Anybody ought to be able to dunk people in water. Just bring them up. That's the main thing. Bring them up. God called me to gospelize. He sent me to preach about Christ and what he's accomplished through his death and resurrection. I'm a gospelizer. I'm an evangelist of the good news. I preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And he's going to take that subject right there and it's going to explode it in chapter 1 and 2 and say, when I came to town, you compared me to the Greek speech makers of Athens who majored in rhetoric, elocution, causatry, debate, shrewdness, great people with words, and I just showed up in town and says, did you know Jesus Christ died for your sins? They nailed him on a cross. 
They buried him. God raised him from the dead. And he's going to judge you in the final judgment by what you've done with this man. He didn't do slick words. He didn't use a slick argument. He did not stoop to Greek rhetoric. He said, I am not depending on speech tricks and technique. My message saves, not my ability to speak. Now hear me. Believers are in the danger of quarreling about many things, and we'll look at some of them. The first thing they did is to legitimatize their quarrels by picking favorite teachers. And Paul takes it on. And he wants to say, and he's going to make clear, what saves and changes lives, preachers or Christ? Is it uh, the man or the message? Is it the message or the method? We are about a cross that we can't doctor it up pretty enough to make the world like it. It stinks to them. They're offended by it. The Greeks call it stupidity, and the Jew says it stumbles us. If you get rid of the cross, the Messiah looks good, but we're not going to have a Messiah crucified. And he said, we preach the cross and we will not depend on any methodology that looks good, makes it slick. You got to tell it better. You got, you'll hear people tell us kinds of preachers like me. You get in their face, don't you? Well, I usually preach to their faces, right? <laughs> well, you, you seem to be rather straightforward. I ain't a smoozer. I'm a proclaimer. I proclaim what he wrote. And by the time I get to you, it's burning in my bones and I believe it. I can preach it easier than I live it, but I believe it. And God didn't save people in this church. You didn't get saved because the guy was the best homiletician, the best rhetorician. Wow. You, you grew up like my folks, poor Okies, poor uh, Dust Bowl people, people that California say, stay out of here, you Okies. And we said, we can't stay out. We're starving in the Dust Bowl. We'll pick your fruit and we'll do all the jobs you don't want to do in Bakersfield and in that heat right on up through the San Joaquin Valley. San Joaquin Valley became the Bible Belt of California. Highway 99. That's where all the big churches in California got planted. Bunch of transplanted Okies, Louisiana, Arkansas, Midwest people that came with Bible roots. Many uneducated. Many pick cotton all day and preach at night in bib overalls. My dad went to churches like that. Poor people. And God saved them. The PhDs didn't save them. Quoting the Greek didn't save them. Quoting Hebrew didn't save them. The message of a crucified Christ saved. 
Because preachers can't save. Preachers can't save. Don't build monuments to preachers. Don't build monuments to Apollos. Don't build one for Paul. Don't, in the name of hypocrisy, build one to Christ. For Christ is not divided. He uses men and women to promote him. But you see, our message saves, not our methods, not uh, how slick we are uh, at talking in front of people. No, 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 no. I will preach the most offensive thing they can hear at Corinth or Athens. I just came from Athens, and they called me a vain babbler when I presented the Christ on Mars Hill. Who brought this babbler to town, they said. And he left, and he went to Corinth, and God saved and God saved. And he was spending three years at the time at the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and God was saving, and the gospel was going all over Asia Minor. We're going to look at this. It's something you need to consider. Who saved you? Who saved you? You know, a lot of people, uh, when pastors leave, church falls off, uh, preacher gets in trouble, People, I'm getting out of here. I ain't, man, this thing's phony. I had my confidence in that preacher or whatever, and he, he done done. He did something. I, I'm out of here. I went to a pastor's conference at Prestonwood Baptist in Dallas, Texas, and Babby Mason put on a great concert. She was the featured music guest, and E.V. Hill flew in when he's pastoring in Watts in L.A., he was going to address us pastors. And this was right after Jim Baker fell and all those problems. Jimmy Swaggart had fallen, and the newspapers were filled with preachers are Elmer Gantries. Preachers are crooks. You don't know what a preacher's doing. And it was bass preachers, bass preachers. And I'm in this convention, as it were, with 3,000 preachers. And every day they headline saying, when is there going to be another crook? When's there going to be another preacher uh, going to bed with the wrong woman? When's this going to happen? The scandals were flying. And uh, as they introduced E.V., he took the pulpit. He said, you know, he said, I might as well get it clear. He said, I've been being asked by a lot of people if we've lost our congregation, if many people have left us. And he said, uh, first of all, let me say this. I didn't get my crowd in Watts from Jimmy Swaggart. I didn't get my audience. They came out of every kind of known sin in the L.A. area, and it was a great Savior that brought them. And all of you preachers here could backslide. Jesus is still going to have some folks he saved. I'm in this because of who saved me. And did you know what? God's got about as much patience with preachers as he does with you. Yeah. God is as patient in teaching and leading us poor men to lead you as he is you. There's a lot of things we can't do without losing our job and our place. But he's patient. One, one man asked the guy after he preached a great sermon, how long did it take you to, to get that sermon? He said, 20 years. He said, it's taken me 20 years of learning how to be able to live it before I could ever preach it. Let me tell you right now, 
when we land in heaven, in verse 9, it says, God is faithful to make you partners and to confirm you to the end. Love pastors and preachers, but don't elevate them to Godhood. Don't get them so high you don't intercede for them. Don't get them so high that you, it, it, whatever they do depends. You must be built on one foundation, Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ saves. Christ keeps. Christ keeps. Christ saves. And you know what? Just treat me like a brother. I don't ask to be treated like a pope, an apostle, or the greatest preacher. Would you just treat me like another sinner that got saved at the foot of the cross? That would be good enough for me. Because I'm not hobnobbing for a big place. I'm hobnobbing with everybody that loves the cross, loves Christ. And do you folks love the cross? Do you love Christ? That's why we're here. We're going to take a journey of all the problems first-generation Christians face. Some of you has been so long, you can't remember when you used to cuss. I hope it's in your past. Some of you look current. Uh, but I love what Hendrix said. He said every once in a while, he went to that Dallas Cowboy locker room just to hear some hells and damns to remind himself when he was unsaved and going to hell. Sometimes we get so churchy and so stuffy, we're not worth spit introducing a young person or someone to Christ because we're all into churchiness. Hey, why don't you remember the pit from which you were dug? And walk with humility and say, if God would save me, honey, there's hope for you. God bless you. You're dismissed.